Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Good afternoon. Um, thank you, everybody, for joining us today for Heritage Events Live. My name is Rachel Gresler, and it's my pleasure to welcome you all to today's event, Safeguarding Worker Freedoms, What's Next in 2021. This will be part one of two in a mini-series um, that Heritage is co-hosting with the Institute for the American Worker. So I'd like to introduce my co-host, Vinny Vernuccio. Vinny is the president of the Institute for the American Worker, which is an organization that seeks to equip policymakers with the tools and the information that they need to stand up for American workers. Now, Vinny has over a decade of experience in labor law and labor policy, and he is a well-known expert in this area. Um, Vinny is now going to introduce our great lineup of panelists who will be joining us on the screen here now. Great, thank you, Rachel, and uh, welcome everyone. Uh, Rachel, Heritage, uh, Rachel and Heritage, Thank you again so much for uh, co-hosting this event. Uh, it is an honor to uh, do this event, I4AW and Heritage. Uh, with that, I would like to invite our all-star panel up to uh, unmute themselves and uh, like to make some introductions. Uh, first on our panel is Erica Jediak, the Director of Economic Opportunity for Stand Together, uh, the Stand Together Chamber of Commerce. She leads national strategy to remove barriers in government, business, communities, and education so every person can rise. She's been published in the Wall Street Journal and Forbes. She's appeared on Fox Business. In her home state of New Jersey, she's been on New Jersey News 12. She also serves as the New Jersey State Advisory Committee on the U.S. Civil Rights Commission. Um, she's the former New Jersey State Director for Americans for Prosperity and was named New Jersey Globe's top 100 most powerful people and received the Athena International Leadership Award. After we hear from Erica, Ed Eggy from the National Retails Federation, he is their chief work, he is chief workforce policy. He directs and ed, and executes policy efforts on labor, employment, health, benefits, retirement, immigration, and man, Ed, when do you even take a break? Those are a lot of areas, uh, and does that all uh, for the retail industry. Ed came to NRF after directing the National Labor Relations Board Office of Congressional and Public Affairs, and he also oversaw the board's interaction with Congress and other federal agencies, the media, and stake stakeholder groups. From 2005 to 2011, he was also Republican Staff Director for the Senate Subcommittee on Employment Workplace Safety, um, which is a key subcommittee on the Health, Education, and Labor, and Pensions Subcommittee. It also has worked at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce in their Labor, Immigration, and Employees, Employee Benefits Division. Last on the panel, we have, last but not least, Rob Green, who uh, many of you know. He is the Director of Workforce Policy for the House Education and Labor Committee. He's responsible for the day-to-day -day workforce labor policy activities for the committee Republicans and providing policy guidance to members of Congress and leadership offices. Also commutes, uh, communicates with external stakeholders and supervises a team of professional and administrative staff. 
Before coming to the committee, Rob was executive director at the National Council of Chain Restaurants. He's also served as vice president of government and political affairs at the National Retail Federation and vice president of the federal relations for federal federal relations for the National Restaurant Association. And Rob has probably forgotten more about labor policy than any of us will ever hope to know. So that is our all-star lineup. And uh, Rachel, I'd like to kick it over back to you. Thanks so much, Minnie. And I want to start off today with what's happening at the state level, because it's often the state policies that will trickle up and could potentially become federal law. Um, in particular, there is one really harmful piece of legislation. That's California's AB5 law, which effectively outlawed many types of independent work. Um, you'll probably hear us all using that term, independent work. What it really refers to is just anybody who doesn't report to a boss or who is in charge of their own workers, self-employed individuals, freelancers, contractors. Um, anyways, when California passed this law, a lot of independent workers started losing jobs and income opportunities left and right. These were independent truckers, freelance writers and photographers, court reporters, gig workers. Um, so, Erica, can you tell us a little bit about what's going on in California with that law and also some other areas of the U.S.? Sure. Well, thank you, Rachel, for the opportunity to be here today. And many people have probably heard of AB5. It's been all over the news, particularly in the context of gig companies. And you mentioned, Rachel, that this is not just covering gig uh, companies, but rather hundreds of professions in California. After California's AB5 at the start of this year, almost a million people have lost some type of income and independent contracting has been essentially gutted in, in California. Now, because of the backlash, there has been some exemptions, uh, including for realtors and at the, at the ballot this November, Prop 22 was passed, which does now exempt Uber and Lyft uh, to some degree. It, it's interesting because this law in many ways was meant to tackle those ride-sharing companies, and now they've been exempted, and all these hundreds of other professions are still included. Uh, folks, you know, can go on to Twitter and just look at hashtag AB5 or hashtag AB5 stories and really get a sense of the economic devastation that we've seen. Uh, folks like Kira Davis uh, with Red State, she's written quite a lot about this. And even freelance uh, writers have been included. Uh, Americans for Prosperity actually uh, submitted an amicus brief in a Pacific Legal Foundation case representing journalists because this is a free speech issue as well. So we've seen a ton of backlash that has not been partisan. It's been across the entire political spectrum. Um, and unfortunately, we're seeing copycat legislation. Uh, so Vinny mentioned my home state of New Jersey. There's a bill here that was introduced by the Senate president. Uh, Senate President Stephen Sweeney. Fortunately, there's been a lot of backlash here as well, uh, despite a very aggressive Department of Labor. Um, but I think we will see, unfortunately, some threats pop up, uh, likely in Virginia as well, um, but then some uh, proactive opportunities, perhaps in Florida and elsewhere, Rachel. Great. Thanks, Erica. Um, 
Another issue that is big and differs across the state is that of labor unions and right to work individuals that have a job without being forced to pay $100 out of their paycheck to a union. So what's happening across the states with that issue? Yes, so 27 states across the country are right to work. Um, and it's interesting because the independent contracting issue um, in some ways dovetails into this. I, I know the rest of the panel will be speaking about the PRO Act, but all of these workers could be affected by federal legislation. Now, 27 states have passed right to work, essentially allowing workers the, the choice to be part of a union, right? And unfortunately, that's not the case in my home state of New Jersey. So a lot of workers don't have that choice to decide what's best for them and their families. But I think we're gonna see states like New Hampshire, Montana, perhaps even Missouri in the coming years consider making these transformative changes. And so hopefully what's happening at the federal level doesn't, uh, doesn't affect what states are, are doing in, in the way of good policy. Great. Hey, thank you, Erica. That was um, that was very illuminating. And I'd also remind everyone about the chat feature. Um, if you would like to ask Erica any more questions at the end or our coming panelists, please utilize that and uh, we'll be happy to uh, take your questions. So moving now to, uh, to Ed. Um, Ed, with a potential Biden administration coming in, what do you expect that we could see coming down the pike in 2021 and beyond? Yeah, sure. And uh, appreciate you guys having me. And thanks to uh, Heritage and the Institute for American Worker for hosting. It's a pleasure to be on with uh, um, Erica and Rob. Uh, so let me start real quick by what I don't see happening. Uh, I every time I Google, uh, you know, labor law in the Biden administration, I tend to read a lot about the National Labor Relations Board. Uh, as Vinny mentioned, I just came from there. I spent a couple years there running their political operation and their relations with Congress. You know, I don't. I think that's going to be the dog that doesn't bark over the next couple of years, um, depending on how these elections go down in down in Georgia. But you know, I, assuming the Republicans can win down there, I just you know I don't see uh, Mitch McConnell putting another Democrat on the board right now. It's three Republicans and one Democrat plus the one vacancy. So um, you know, all the all the what I think are good things that we did when I was at the board, when John uh, under John Ring's leadership, um, the chairman there. You know, I just don't think there's going to be um, any successful efforts uh, to over overturn a lot of the precedents, a lot of the rulemakings uh, that we put forward, whether it's employer access, whether it's joint employer, all the different things that um, that we did over there at the NLRB. You know, I just think those are going to stay more or less untouched uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, again, uh, it's three to one right now. Uh, Member Emanuel is going to roll off in August. The following August, John Ring rolls off. So it's going to go from three to one to two to one. And then it's just going to be one to one. And then at that point, you know, it's going to depend on those November 22 elections. So um, so I want to sort of start with that. That's not that what is not going to happen. But what is going to happen is we're going to see a lot of activity in the Biden Labor Department. Um, as Rob will well remember, when Obama comes in in 2009, we had all sorts of horribles <clears throat> that, they, that we thought they were going to do. And then we got the blessing that was Hilda Solis's term there. Uh, Solis uh, was anything but effective, right? So for under the um, under the Obama administration, the first half basically they got little to nothing to nothing done. I don't think we're going to be that lucky again. We're going to get a uh, labor department under a secretary who's experienced, who's politically savvy, who's well connected with the White House, 
and they are going to be very, very active. Um, first things first, I think right out of the box is going to be an emergency temporary standard regarding the COVID-19 virus. Um, this is going to be either not either harmful or it could possibly be even workable depending on how they come out with it. Uh, the California regulation that just got promulgated, and I use the term loosely, it was a 10-day promulgation period. Um, they, they put it in place over 10 days. It includes a leave provision. It includes mandatory testing of all your employees under certain scenarios. Um, it is a very unworkable and, um, regulation. If they try to put something like that in at the federal level, under, under an ETS, I do assume it would go quickly to court. Um, federal ETSs have to meet a pretty high threshold whereby they, the danger has to be um, grave is the actual terminology that the, the language uses. And um, OSHA has to demonstrate that the only way they can address the grave danger is through uh, this standard. So it's a very, very high standard, uh, but I do think they're gonna try it very, very quickly. The second area I think you're gonna see a lot of uh, activity on is joint employer. What is joint employer? Uh, the very easy way to think about it is if you walk into a Starbucks, those people you in interact with at the Starbucks, those are Starbucks employees. If you walk into a Dunkin' Donuts, the people you interact with are employees of the local franchisee, the local small business. Whether, whether that individual owns two, three, four Dunkin' Donuts, depends on where you are, but it's gonna be a small employer. The unions hate the latter model, right? They do not like the franchisee model. It's very hard for them to organize those workers. It's very hard to get class actions and on and on and on. So they are going to go after that model. So when we talk about franchise, when we talk about joint employer franchise issues, that's really the distinction we're talking about. Um, they are going to try to make the make those those franchisers, the companies that have the logo at the top, whether it's McDonald's, whether it's uh, Dunkin' Donuts, whoever, they're going to try to make those guys responsible in, in the broadest sense of the term for those workers in the workplace. So that's going to be the second area. And then third, and Erica commented on this, we're going to see some at federal activity on independent contractor. Trying to blur that line between what is an employee and what is an independent contractor. Again, it's going to look a lot like what Erica was just talking about, so I don't want to go over that again. But we're certainly going to see those same, those same efforts at the federal level. Great. Thanks, Ed. Appreciate that. When you say uh, for the independent contractor and joint employer, um, you know, it, it, it sounds like things may at least be stalled out at the NLRB. Do you foresee this coming through DOL uh, through the regulatory process? And when do you think that might happen? Absolutely. I think it's going to be, I think they're going to start the process. Um, and again, this would be just a joint employer on the Fair Labor Standards Act, not on the National Labor Relations Act. NLRB would, uh, would obviously have that jurisdiction, but um, there is some stuff, you know, there, the Trump administration tried to put tried to put out a rule. It has now been enjoined by a court. NRF um, and other federal, excuse me, and other trade associations are in the process of appealing that. But no, it's going to be, they're going to start working on both, I think, joint employer and independent contractor in, in the summer and, and fall of uh, 2021. Thanks, Ed. I think we're going to move over to Rob now and... Um hear what's going on in Congress. You know, I think there's been a lot of troubling legislation that's come out of the committee that you work for, Rob, over the last th couple of years. I mean, troubling, at least for those of us who care about worker freedom. So what do you see coming down the pipelines in the next year or two? 
Well, thank you, Rachel. Appreciate it very much. And want to thank Heritage and Institute for the American Worker for hosting this event. I think it's a great use of time and want to thank both you and Vinny for putting this together. Um, I'd like to, I, what I'll do is just amplify what Erica and Ed said, because I think in the legislative space, we're going to see um, a lot of similar themes, a lot of similar um, issues coming up. And I think we have a, a good roadmap uh, based on what happened in this Congress, 116th Congress, it's still going on, uh, another week or so and things may be done. Uh, but there, the committee was very active, committee Democrats were very active in the labor policy space over the last two years. They had a lot of pent up demand, shall we say, um, coming back into the majority. So uh, our members were willing to fight the good fight and to, to call, call the Democrats out for their overreach and uh, uh, for what we thought were a lot of bad policy ideas. So what I'll probably just do is tick through the, some of the legislation the Democrats processed uh, in the last two years, which we think, you know, likely they'll repeat that because I think they, they, they I think Democrats feel, regardless of uh, Biden administration and an uh, opportunity to achieve some things through the regulatory process, uh, it's always better to uh, process legislation and and move the ball forward and see what you can get signed into law. So. I think I'll start with the PRO Act, and everybody's very familiar with that uh, very broad and sweeping and radical bill. Um, it's really the labor union's kitchen sink uh, wish list of every policy they've wanted to uh, accomplish in the last 30 years. You have card check style elections, you have um, undermining privacy rights for employees, you have repeal of national right to work laws around the country. You have um, a codification of the California ABC test that Erica talked about. AB5 would be implemented, would be assigned to law without any exceptions. California, they had, I think the legislature had to really backtrack and start exempting all their uh, friends and family that were complaining about uh, how unworkable uh, that, that structure is. Correct basically just makes it a national law. So look forward to that. Um, in your neighborhood. So, I, you know, PRO Act is really just really uh, bad policy. It also goes back to the Obama, Obama administration and it reinstates a lot of the uh, NLRB uh, rulings from uh, joint employer and Browning Ferris to ambush elections and the list goes on. It's, it's just really uh, uh, sweeping and, and really radical bill. It passed the House earlier this year. It took, you know, Democrats a year to get to it for some reason, but it passed in February. Uh, we had um, five Republicans and seven Democrats, five Republicans voted for it, seven Democrats voted against it. So you can sort of see there is a path forward for that bill, and we fully expect Democrats to, to work very hard and to, to bring that up uh, in, in 2021. So moving on, uh, Democrats also uh, processed a bill that would uh, nationalize a $15 minimum wage um, over five years. It took them uh, a long time to get that bill up. They promised it in the first 100 days of the Congress. It took them seven, eight months to uh, navigate that within their caucus. Um, CBO came out with a study in 2019 that says a $15 minimum wage could cost up 3.7 million jobs. I think the arguments are clear in terms of uh, the impact of that bill in uh, states that have a lower cost of living and are uh, just have a, a, a different type of uh, setup than New York versus Alabama, I think is a good. Uh, contrast. So we, I just expected uh, uh, Bobby Scott, who's the sponsor of the bill and chairman of the, of the Ed and Labor Committee, to uh, make an effort to uh, 
reload on that bill and, and to bring it up. And he has uh, obviously President-elect Biden's support for that, who's major, uh, uh, one of the major issues that pres President-elect talked about was $15 minimum wage. So uh, my guess is the uh, House Democrats will want to uh, amplify that and uh, to uh, promote that and move uh, pretty quickly on that legislation. Uh, we're also looking at issues like paid leave. Um, we've seen it within the context of COVID-19. Um, FICRA uh, was acted early uh, in the during the pandemic. It, it would it provided I mean imposed a mandate on employers, but coupled with some relief on the on the tax side uh, for uh, paid leave for uh, certain employees impacted uh, by the pandemic. Uh, but we've seen Democrats talk about. You know, it's a difficult situation we find ourselves in with the pandemic, but Democrats want to use that to their advantage and try to move uh, larger policies. So we're expecting uh, Rosa DeLore's bill, the Health Families Act, to be a priority for Democrats would require employers with 15 or more employees to uh, offer to provide seven days of paid sick leave. And then smaller employees, low 15, would have to provide unpaid sick leave. So we view that as just not good public policy, one size fits all. Um, also, I think Democrats have uh, problems with the overtime rule, and they want to bring they want to go back to the Obama rule, which set a really unrealistic threshold to qualify for overtime pay, close to fifty thousand dollars a year, and anybody earning below that would automatically be required to be paid overtime. The Trump administration came up with a lot more reasonable and rational um, rule, which sets that threshold at thirty-five thousand. So there's a bill out there from uh, Congressman Takano to reinstate that. So we'll see what happens with that issue as well. Workplace safety, big priority for uh, congressional Democrats. Ed pointed out that the, the OSHA would do an emergency temporary standard on COVID very quickly, but there's also legislation to require that. My guess is the Democrats will want to move that bill uh, because if you can enact that into law somehow, that uh, it inoculates uh, the department from lawsuits in many ways. So we're, we're expecting uh, a lot of conversation on, on COVID as it relates to um, OSHA's work. Democrats also want to expand OSHA in terms of penalties, coverage, uh, employer requirements, privacy. Uh, there's a bill that uh, uh, Congressman Courtney has to ex dramatically expand the scope of, of OSHA and the OSH Act. And uh, we see that coming uh, in, the, in, the, in the near term as well. Uh, Democrats also want to deal with workplace violence in the workplace as well. So we'll see more on that. Uh, employment non-discrimination, a couple bills passed the House, this Congress, dealing with uh, equal pay, uh, discrimination against older workers, and um, accommodations for pregnant workers. These bills all passed the House uh, with uh, modest um, Republican defections and uh, very modest Democrat defections, if any. But those are all probably coming in, in the in the year 2021 because Democrats want to continue to uh, uh, both promote those issues and uh, you know and, and to try to advance those issues um, through the Senate depending on what happens. So there'll be also be a couple of Congressional Review Act uh, efforts relating to some Trump administration regulations, DOL regulations relating to mostly in the sort of in, uh, in uh, retirement security space uh, but we should see some more of those coming in the uh, particularly in the spring. Uh, because of the uh, timing that the CRA requires. I think independent contractor rule, union transparency, and perhaps fiduciary rule will be on the CRA list. So that's a quick update and overview, but happy to take questions. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Rob. Um, one thing that's coming to mind is you were mentioning all of these agenda items. A lot of them 
in light of no COVID-19 have drawn to light the importance of having flexibility in your work, um, of having work opportunities as some opportunities are going away as businesses are shuttered or restrictions are put in place. Um, and yet all of these things that you're mentioning would be taking away those opportunities, things like the overtime threshold. You know, I don't think people realize that what employers sometimes do in response to that, if you have an hourly employee, they'll often kick you off of your email server and you can't do anything remotely. It all has to be done in the physical office where you're actually punching the clock card. Um, and that combined with the Democrats' smaller majority now, do you think that that will impact you know, what they're pushing for? Or do you think that they'll still be as aggressive as they were in the past? I appreciate the question. I, I think the jury's out on a little bit, but I mean, I think I think we should be ready for the Democrats just to keep going forward as, as quickly and aggressively as they can. Um, you know, I think the dominant feature of the Democratic caucus is sort of the more liberal uh, left-wing members, and they tend, they also populate the Education Labor Committee. Um, so I, I think there is continuing interest uh, from many Democrat members to advance the policies that were uh, brought up in the uh, current Congress and also to add a few more to it. Um, and they'll, try, they'll find a way forward. The speaker is very, uh, um, I think, effective in terms of marshalling votes for uh, priorities for, the, for their caucus and for the incoming administration. So I fully expect, I wouldn't be surprised, uh, you know, if when the Democrats advance many of these bills, maybe a little bit heavier lift for them and, and our, our obligation and responsibility is to is to uh, you know put up a very uh, principled fight on those. We think we have uh, a very good point of view on this, a uh, very realistic point of view to uh, point out the shortcomings in their proposals. But my guess is the, uh, the House Democrats and the Committee Democrats in particular will uh, not miss a beat and will push very very aggressively on on all their priorities. Great, thanks, Rob, and thank you to our panel. Um, those were uh, fantastic presentations. I know I've learned a lot. Um, and uh, our attendees have uh, sent in a flood of questions. So I just want to start uh, with a couple of them. And the first one, I'm going to apologize to the asker. I am not going to answer because uh, the question he has essentially has to do with sectoral bargaining. And guess what? We are going to have an entire session on that at the same time next week. That's actually round two of the joint heritage i4aw sessions um so i'd like to invite you and uh the rest of the attendees to join us next week as well uh wednesday the 16th uh from uh, 3 to 3:45, and we'll get into sectoral bargaining we'll get into some of the benefits that we can see unions could actually bring forward such as voluntary unionism uh but we are going to be going into depth on that next week. So apologies for not asking the question this time, but I hope you will join where we are going to definitely go into the weeds and explore that a bit more next Wednesday. Uh, Rachel? Yes. Yeah, so we have a question here, probably best answered by you, Erica, about how companies are dealing with the impacts of the AB5 law and the inability to hire these independent contractors. I know that it's actually small businesses they rely on independent contractors more. The companies that have four or fewer employees on average use seven independent contractors. Um, so imagine how that is hurting them, you know, out in California and what that could do to the rest of the U.S. Do you have any indication of what those companies are doing? Yeah, so I think the initial reaction we've seen are businesses leaving California. And many of the independent contractors in California 
of small business owners themselves and employ independent contractors. Um, you know, I was just reading the story of Kathleen Lomax here in New Jersey. She's a, a doctor of pharmacy and she has um, a number of contractors and she was actually interested in having more flexibility and leaving the full-time grind of having a pharmaceutical job here. Um, she wanted to, you know, focus on other areas of her life with her children and travel. And for her, those kind of seasons of life, right, meant a lot. And she wanted that flexibility. And now with that under threat, you know, she's speaking out. And so I think we've seen bigger, bigger businesses, even like 7-Eleven said, we're leaving California. We're not opening up any new businesses. And so I think that will have an effect in California specifically until Prop 22, Uber and Lyft, um, they were certainly having to reassess their business model and leave as well. And then the other aspect of this is confusion, right? So there may be different, um, you know, the IRS has one standard, your state could have an ABC test, right? There's uh, the US Department of Labor, there's all these different standards that small entrepreneurs have to navigate and figure out. And those come with pretty hefty legal costs, um, as well as complaints, right? So um, any, any kind of even unintentional misstep can come with a very, very heavy price tag. And we're seeing even state departments of labor have um, pretty aggressive decisions as far as how, they, as how they deal with those. But I think the important thing here, Rachel, is with COVID-19 um, particularly, and, and the year that we've had, both workers and employers need more flexibility. I think independent contracting is just it's, it's ripe for working remotely, um, whether that's because of volatile school schedules or maybe transitioning careers. Uh, I've even read a study that um, people who have been independent contracting were set up more for success this year because they had multiple revenue uh, income streams, right? Um, and so there's a lot of benefits here, Rachel, that were particularly and could be particularly hard hit, um, you know, if, if we see copycat legislation in the states next year. Yeah, thanks, Erica. And I think, um, you know, that must be difficult for these small businesses that are out there and they're, it's even fines and, you know, legal imprisonment for classifying workers in the wrong way. And I imagine many of them are just struggling to get by and saying, I'm just going to do this and hire this contractor and hopefully I don't get, you know, sued or put in jail for it in the long run. But that's not a position that we should be putting small businesses in. Benny, would you like to pull another question from the audience there? Absolutely. And uh, by the way, besides being president of Institute for the American Worker, I wear many hats, um, but I'm also an independent contractor. So uh, this issue is definitely personal for me and um, I love the lifestyle and uh, I hope that I can, you know, keep that flexibility in the future. So, Erica, thanks for all your Stand Together and AFP's great work on that. Uh, going to uh, the next question, Ed, this might be uh, best for you. I think you have your uh, finger on the pulse here, but definitely open it up to any of the panelists. Who do you think the Democrats are considering for NLRB's general counsel? And can you go into 
a little bit of the detail of what's happening there. So the general counsel position is an interesting position. Um, it's I think it's very, very different from just about any other really federal role. Um, so the NLRB has two different sides of the house. One is the adjudicatory side, which is the three to one um, ratio that I was talking about in terms of the side of the NLRB that essentially adjudicates um, labor law disputes nationwide within the private sector. The other side is headed by the general counsel and it is much larger. Um, these, these guys investigate and then prosecute employers nationwide for alleged violations of the National Labor Relations Act. He is also, he being the general counsel in the current case is Peter, Peter Robb. Uh, Peter also, um, in addition to being the in-house general counsel, also is the chief administrative officer of the NLRB. So it's a really kind of a unique role, and it's a very, very powerful role uh, within the within the board within the board and in the, the agency structure. So who are they considering? So first off, we should say that Peter rolls off in November. There is a lot of scuttlebutt online that um, Biden will attempt to fire him. I'm not sure that will happen. Um, my if I had to bet on it, I would guess it won't happen. Um, especially if the two Senate seats go to the Republicans. Um, why would you, if you were Biden, why would you go out of your way to antagonize McConnell? Because you're going to need him to get a Democrat in there. And why would you give him the perfect excuse to essentially never fill that, that position? Um, so my guess is that won't happen, but it's certainly possible. Um, under the, at the very beginning of the Trump administration, the previous general counsel, Griff, Dick Griffin, the Democrat stayed on for several months into, into Trump's term. So there's precedent here going the other way. Uh, so to answer the specific question as to who I think will will, would get it, um, the names bandied about uh, most common, um, Jennifer Abruzzo, who was uh, at, the, at the board for, and was actually acting general counsel for a very brief time uh, during, at the very beginning of the Trump administration, certainly Abruzzo, um, who I believe is the communication workers right now, uh, Rob, you can correct me on that if I'm wrong. Um, but anyway, I would say Abruzzo uh, would certainly be a name that's out there. Um, other names that, you know, bandied about, uh, there's certainly, um, yeah, gosh, there's, there's a lot, I would say a lot, basically a lot from the union side that I think, um, that I think would be considered. But if I had to guess right now, it would be Abruzzo. Thanks, Ed. Um, we have another question here about unionization and coming off of the Janus ruling have some implication for workers being allowed, at least public sector workers being allowed to opt out of unions. Um, Erica, have you seen any trends in that um, public sector side, private sector side and workers opting out? Yes, uh, so the, the Janus decision at the Supreme Court le level uh, reaffirmed free speech rights for public sector workers and um, I do know that in a number of particularly blue states, we've seen on average about 15% of public sector workers opt out of their unions, make that choice. Um, however, the unions um, and a number of state legislatures have been putting up a lot of barriers, right? Um, I do think what we're going to see in the coming year are perhaps more states bring their um, uh, bring, bring their state into compliance with the decision. So what does that mean? Uh, allowing workers to opt out at any time and also have affirmative consent um, so that workers must have um, notified and actually said, right, I want to participate in that union. I want to pay dues uh, because right now some of those forms don't currently exist. 
but Alaska, Texas, and Indiana attorney generals have issued advisory opinions in the past year. So it's possible that we'll see some other states trend that way next year. Great, thanks Erica. Um, one more question, and uh, I guess I'll open it up to the entire panel here. Um, do any of you see any labor issues where a Biden administration will have a positive, a positive vision uh, for the future, even if it's a potential incremental change in the next four years? You know, from my from my members' perspective, and I don't want to jump on Rob and Erica, but my members' perspective, I mean, I think there are areas that we can work together with the Obama, excuse me, with the Biden administration. Um, for, certainly, uh, immigration is an area that uh, we can we can find common ground um, and. Uh, Trade policy is another area. Um, workforce development, uh, workforce training. Yeah, there there are places we can we can work together. But on the traditional labor issues that you know we tend to be talking about here, no. I mean, I think we're pretty far apart. Rob, Erica. I was just gonna jump in. So I I agree with Ed that the issues we covered here today, there's certainly some distance between our policy positions. But then there's issues like occupational licensing reform, where we have seen. Um, uh, Joe Biden actually speak out about how unfair a lot of the country's licensing uh, laws are and that, you know, there's been an increase where now 20% of professions require some type of license. And a lot of times the, the license requirements are really not equitable as far as they, they don't really equate to public safety. And it's preventing people from really getting ahead. And we've seen Joe Biden speak out there. So it's possible that's an area for common ground. And this is Rob. I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll agree with that. It's, I think traditional labor law, there's very little opportunity. But, you know, there are elements outside of our jurisdiction that we share jurisdiction on. Things like portable benefits. I think there's bipartisan interest in trying to figure out a path forward, particularly, you know, while we're protecting the independent contractor model, there needs to be some. Uh, more, uh, you know, thought given to how, you know, how those workers can uh, uh, find a way to, uh, you know, access some of that. And uh, there's good thinking going on on, on our side of the aisle. And not, but I'm not sure we can get to critical mass, but, you know, that's definitely an area for, for consideration. Thanks. We have a question here that's dealing with um, ability to kind of mitigate the Democrats' liberal agenda. And I know that labor policy really touches into all different areas here. And so this question is looking at how could their agenda and climate change affect, you know, say the oil and gas industry and recognizing that that's a energy security and national security issue as well. Do any of you have suggestions on how to kind of mitigate those extreme agendas? Rachel, I'll just jump in maybe with a, a quick response here that I think we can talk about how innovation has alleviated a lot of some of the climate change concerns and how we should be really tackling regulatory reform in this way, whether that's, um, I know on nuclear plants, I wanna say the, the last time there was a, a new nuclear power plant, it was more than 30 years ago, just because it's so difficult with uh, the current regulations and, and licensing in place essentially. So I think, one thing that um, for common ground and kind of where we can we can bridge that gap is specifically in the area of innovation to to tackle a lot of the environmental concerns. Um, and we've seen states that have had these more favorable policies have not just affordable energy, right, but actually improve um, their environment as well. 
Thanks, Erica. And I'm just going to ask one more here. Um, Ed, you, you talked a fair bit about you know the you know requirements that might come out related to COVID-19, but I've also heard you know that other OSHA um, issues would be a big one moving forward. Can you just talk a little bit about how you know now where you are in the Retail Foundation? How does that impact a company? You know, I think that everybody tends to think, oh, these are just safety regulations, and of course they need to be there. But dealing with the day-to-day -day of actually, you know, enacting those policies and just the burden that that creates, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, you know, when I came to this job, honestly, I hadn't give, given OSHA a lot of thought. Um, OSHA has been, even really throughout much of the um, Obama administration, much less the Trump administration, OSHA hasn't really been a big factor. And I think, um, ever really, I mean, even going back, really, OSHA has been relatively calm since ergonomics was re repealed in 2001, uh, going way back. You know, I would say, I would, from a governance, liberal governance perspective, from the union's perspective, they need OSHA to matter again. And I really think there's gonna be, they had the kind of the driving force, and Rob remembers this well, um, behind ergonomics back in the late 90s, the argument was that OSHA was going to essentially rot on the vine, that the whole, the whole design of the agency was essentially going to be you know, thrown to the wayside by technology, that old time, you know, the, the old time factories, the old time union, unionized facilities were just, go, were just going away, the old Rust Belt was, go, was going, and so they tried, the whole idea behind ergonomics was to bring this regulatory regime into the modern workplace, into keyboards, essentially. That was really the thrust. You know how that's gonna how that's gonna look in the Biden administration. You know, I just don't know, and I'm sure Rob and Erica probably have some ideas on that too. Um, but you know, my guess is to answer your more specific question that we are, you know, that they are gonna they are going to try to um, humiliate the 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 companies they come after. They are gonna gonna try to um, basically do away with opinion letters so that you have to guess as to their interpretation on guidance. They're going to make it as difficult as possible to to, um, to essentially comply with their law, um, to comply with their regulations, and they're going to humiliate um, em employers on the way out. Thanks, Ed. Well, I think that concludes um, our panel today. I'd like to thank all of you for sharing your insights um, and also about the audience for your great questions that we're engaging here. I hope that you can join Vinny and I again at the same time, same place next week for part two of our Safeguarding Worker Freedom series, um, where Michael Saltzman, who is the Managing Director of the Employment Policies Institute, will join Vinny and I to discuss the future of work beyond just 2020, 2021. Um, so if you work at a, on the Hill, at the Think Tank, or have any questions, please contact us using the information listed on the screen. We would love to continue this conversation. Um, immediately following this event, you'll receive a survey that we hope you'll complete so that we can bring ideas that you care about to the public square. And to see the events that we have coming up, please check out heritage.org backslash events. Again, thank you and have a great day.